Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. We're the professional association for UK film and TV directors. No matter the format, no matter the genre, our featured directors share their approach to the craft. We hope you enjoy. So welcome, Alexander Payne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, good evening to everyone. And my only lament is that I can't see you. I'm prevented from seeing any of you. Picture a bunch of very intelligent artistic okay. types, I think. Um, yeah, I, I adore this film. Um, I've been lucky to speak to you a little bit about it before. Uh, but for people who don't know, um, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of how this story made its way to you? It was partly your idea. Um, you write most of your other feature films, but this one David Hemmingson wrote brilliantly. It, it reads like an Alexander Payne film, which is the highest compliment. Uh, to David, but it was partly inspired by a film you saw and then partly by something else David had an idea for. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin? A dozen years ago, I saw a little known 1930s French film at a film festival. And I don't remember the film itself very well, but the premise uh, impressed me as something which could continue to be malleable. I thought, well, that's that's a, basically a good idea for a movie. So it was on my list and I didn't hadn't done anything with it for years and years. And I, cause I thought I'm going to have to do my own research into that world of new England boarding schools. Cause I'm not from that world. And uh, then the gods sent me a pilot script for a TV pilot written by David Hemmingson. And it was set in a boarding school in the 1980s. And I thought it was really well-written. So I called him up out of the blue and said, Mr. Hemmingson, you've written a fine screenplay, which I don't, or teleplay, which I don't wish to do, but would you consider writing something for me in that same world? So he agreed. He happened to like my other movies and we had a really rich collaboration in doing so. And if you say it reads like something I might've written, well, it is something I might've written because I provided the premise and uh, worked with him developing, you know, exactly what story trajectory that the screenplay would have and then you know i get under the hood a little bit myself too yeah i, I do want to during this conversation talk a little bit more about some of these key collaborations and how you're thinking about these processes so especially working with a screenwriter like david how involved are you on that that script process does he just send you drafts and you make a tweak did was it a constant collaboration oh. No, all of the above. Mostly it was, you know, I wanted him to make it his and and let his imagination fire unfettered by me. But he would send me uh, portions of drafts and scenes for my comments so I could criticize the hell out of him. And uh, and then once it got, once we had a full draft, then I said, hang on just a minute, let me just have my way with it for a moment. So then I work on it for a while and then send it back to him and he back to me. And then it's kind of a dialectic between the two of us. And the it was my first uh, experience, let's say, directing a writer. Mm. You know, I, I direct the rest of my creative collaborators, the editor, the cinematographer, the production designer. So it makes sense that at a certain point, like other as like other directors do, I would be directing the writer. And uh, he was only too generous about, about welcoming my input, you know, because he knows that I usually write for myself. Mm -hmm. But it was a really rich collaboration, as I say. And I recommend it if you can find the right collaborator. That's always the case. Uh, but the result is something, uh, I must say, very personal to us both. Um, 
Yeah, thank you for telling us a little bit about how you worked with David. I, I'm also curious, obviously you made The Descendants in Hawaii. It's not like you only work in the Midwest, <laughs> but so much of your work is informed by growing up in Omaha, Nebraska and those environs. Uh, so how, did you feel a little bit like a fish out of water going to this sort of New England boarding school Yes and no. I wouldn't say fish out of water. I mean, uh, look at what, what about documentary filmmakers? Hmm. You say, I'm going to explore this world now and I have a skill set with which to do it. And I think the skill set I have now to go into a place and try to as much, you know, keep the intimate story in the foreground, but have a, a str as strong a sense of the place as I can muster hmm. in the background and surrounding the characters well, that's a skill set I started in my hometown of Omaha mm. and then developed in Southern California and for Sideways. And as you say, mm. in Hawaii for the descendants, that was a tough one. <laughs> and then even rural Nebraska for Nebraska, that, that was a world foreign to me, mm. you know, to get the rhythms of it right, to get the sense of the, you know, how people move and, and how they speak and everything. So um, this film, I didn't really know from New England. Um much less Massachusetts specifically, but uh, Boston friends tell me that um, it feels pretty accurate. Boarding school friends tell me it's, veterans tell me it's pretty accurate. And the extra overlay I had with this film for the first time was period. So not just within a, an area, taking, as I like to say, a documentary approach to filmmaking, to feature fiction filmmaking in this particular area, but also traveling, traveling back in time 50 years. That was a lot yep. of fun. Obviously, this era is important, not just for the setting, but for the style and the look of the film. And I think I've read that you said you were a teenager in the 70s during some of the heyday of American great cinema of the 70s. Is that your favorite era of cinema? Do you Is that such a thing that you have? No, I have many favorite eras. And it depends on the country of origin, too. I'm a big film, you know, like I'm sure like many of you, a big film buff. Yeah, I did read your sight and sound top 10, by the way, okay. so everybody can go check that out. Yeah. Yes. It, on the another day would have been a different top 10. Yeah. But what I was just going to say is that still, I think that we are marked in our taste in music, our taste in film, our taste in art, to some degree by what we were exposed to when we were in our teens and early 20s. Somehow our taste cements a little bit, mm. not that we're that rigid. But um, I was a movie crazy kid, teenager in the 1970s. You know, I started university in 1979. So I was, my buddies and I were just going to those films all the time. And that those films, which now belong to, we, we didn't know it was a golden age at the time. Now it's considered the last like golden age of American cinema. Mm. Those are the movies that were imprinted upon me as what a commercial, narrative, adult motion picture is. And then 10 years later, when I, when I got out of film school, the culture, the movie culture had changed, but I never changed. And I've really been trying to make 70s movies ever since. I mean, this one has the imprimatur, the feeling of an actual 70s movie, kind of a parlor trick I wanted to pull off. But just trying to do human comedy dramas has been my bag for all these years. Thank you, because we need them. <clears throat> and there's not enough of them. <laughs> I think other countries still make them. Yeah. I mean, the American cinema is too littered by all those big, big, big movies, and they kind of 
have hegemony, real estate hegemony in the theaters. But um, I don't know. Some of the French, the Nordics, maybe do them. Um, I would love to talk a little bit more about the the visual language of the film because it is highly influenced, I think, by the seventies. And you worked for the first time with cinematographer Igel Brild, who who is brilliant. Um, and why did you want Igel to shoot this film? And how did you talk about the visual language you wanted to explore? For those of you who may not recognize his name, Igel Brild shot famously in Bruges that in a couple seasons of uh, House of Cards, but in Bruges was was something that I saw on his CV that got my attention. Uh, I had just, why do you work with a DP or, a, or an editor or a production designer? Because you like his or her work. And then you meet that person and you like that person personally. You know, it's very important to just have a good, easy rapport. And I had met Eigel uh, four or five years ago when I was prepping another film, one that never came to fruition. And I didn't hire him on that one, but I liked him. And then when it came time to do this one, I just called him up and said, hey, hey, I go, you want to do this? And I sent him the script and I kind of told him what I was looking for. And he came back with some very inventive thoughts and articulate kind of positions as to how we might approach it. Hmm. Uh, and then it was just about to, to achieve a period look we, te- we, of course, it's like, oh, we got to shoot film, 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 film. Well, we tested film. And we, you see where this is going. We tested digital. We tested 35. We tested 16. And ultimately, we were going to have to treat it so much in the DI afterwards that and contemporary film stocks are so tight and seemingly grain free that it wasn't going to make a hell of a lot of difference whether we shot film or digital a little bit, you know, maybe in how it captures the the image, but minimally. So we shot digitally because again, my movies have by American standards, relatively low budgets. So I have to scrimp and save wherever I can, but it worked out nicely. You know, the it turned out that the products that they can use in, in post and the colorists can use in the DI are really superior to what I had seen 10 years ago when I put some grain on Nebraska, then it's just like, well, what blanket of snow do you want on your, <laughs> on your image? Now it's lizard it's, or yes. You no, know, but there's a product called live grain. And I'm sure there are others that, that just as grain does for actual film, it reacts differently considering how much light is in that portion of the frame. So we did that and we added a little gate weave and softened the, the lines and it, it's a the it looks pretty good in the di but it looks even better on film we did a film out okay and about five cinemas in the u.s did project it on 35 and there oh, the illusion okay. the little parlor trick the illusion is complete because then it really looks like a movie it's shot. film yes yeah but because the thing okay. about this whole discussion of digital versus film what you shoot on you know, I'm not going to be dogmatic one way or the other, because our job as director stays the same. What's the story? Who are the actors? Where are they going to stand? What's the shot design? That's all technology proof. What I miss is uh, film projection. Hmm. And that's been lost forever. Forever? Kind of, kind of. Pretty much. I mean, in 99% of the cinemas. You have to go to a Cinematheque or something and see an older print, usually, unless you've got a Nolan or a Tarantino film or a few prints of my film where you, you know, mm. you put it out on film. 
but in general, it's, um, you know, it's a DCP world anymore. And how would you say the locations you found influenced the visual style or, you know, helped with the performances to shoot at places like Deerfield Academy? What were the location work on this film? Thank you for the question, because uh, it, that's of supreme importance to me, is I can't stand shooting on a set. I want to shoot always on locations. And this film, I'm proud to say, is 100% locations. Now, I mean, often you have to build a small space, like a closet or a bathroom or something, just cheat it with two or three walls. And because <clears throat> otherwise, you know, those spaces are too tight to get uh, a crew and an actor into. But not in this one, there's 100% locations. And earlier in this conversation, I refer referred to what I like to call a documentary approach to mm. fiction filmmaking. And that's sort of what I've told myself I'm doing because I, I always want the patina of real reality, not movie reality in my films. Uh, yes, it's a construct where it's a fabricated thing, but an element I feel important for me anyway, is this, as I say, real reality that even in the screenplay, I, I never want to do a story that couldn't other than downsizing, but a story that couldn't conceivably happen in the real world. You know, this could, this could actually happen. Oh. So that's one. And then you very correctly and thoughtfully ask about the relationship between production design and acting. And that's a huge relationship. You know, we all know our actors talk about, well, do you work from the inside out or the outside in? And it's always both, but in as much as outside in helps them, the mustache, the hat, yeah. the, the pipe, whatever, it doesn't stop at what they wear. It's everything around them, the surroundings they're in. If it's believable, that helps them drop more squarely into character. Paul Giamatti now is uh, spoken about when he's at his desk in that opening scene in the holdovers. He would open up his desk drawers and find period appropriate staplers and paper clips and notepads and pens and so forth, Rolodex. The audience will never see it, but it's there for the actor. Mm. And a good production designer and set dresser, set decorator know that and put those things in for the actors. It, it helps immensely. Mm. But it's also, I found it really wasn't overdone with 70s kitsch or cliches. It was how an office might have looked in 1970 that wasn't full of carpet. Our, our aesthetic was, gee, let's not make a period film. Our aesthetic was, let's pretend we're making a contemporary film in 1970. And the aesthetic should be as found and banal and lived in as if we were making a low-budget film then. I know so many people here are really curious. Uh, you're renowned for getting amazing performances from all kinds of actors. Um, this is your reunion with Paul Giamatti after The Brilliant Sideways. Um, you're also working with Divine Joy Randolph. Uh, as Mary Lamb, uh, they both won their Golden Globes last week and we're looking for their BAFTA nominations on Thursday and newcomer Dominic Sessa. So you've got three main actors. I mean, there's a brilliant ensemble cast, um, Carrie Preston as well. But Thank you for these... mentioning her. I'm, I'm, very, so I'm good. proud I of her, her work in the picture. Thank you. Uh, but you've got these three who probably all have very different processes. 
So how do you adapt to eat what each actor might need on their own? And I'm not interested in process. I'm not interested in actor's process. And I don't think directors should be. (laughs) Look, I don't want to say what the director should be. But I'm interested in what they do on set. How they get there is their business. And uh, sure, Davine might be different from how Paul approaches it, from how Dominic does. But as long as they're more or less in character and hit their marks and recite their dialogue exactly as written, you know, we're 90% of the way there. Um, I haven't, I mean, it's a fair question. And certainly in directing school, we're taught, well, you know, like Elliot Kazan teaches us, you know, you have to get under this, into the soul of every one of your actors and see what makes him or her tick and know what buttons to push when the chips are down and all that. You know, I'm not like that. (laughs) I just, most of what I need to do is in casting. I mean, that old, that yep. super old cliche is so true. 90% of directing is casting. Mm. And you mentioned Paul with whom I've worked. So we have not even a shorthand. It's like a no hand. We don't really need to do <laughs> anything to each other. And, um, you know, it's not, I'm not suggesting that I don't, or we shouldn't direct actors. All actors need to know they're in good hands, mm. you know, that their work is going to be responsibly that they have that there's a responsible custodian for their work let's yeah. say that that's that's what gives them security and so i can't really say more about how each actor works but okay. those are some considerations yes. <laughs> around it with uh dominic sessa you know this is his first screen role can you tell us a little bit how you found him and maybe we don't need to know his process but how did you try to work with him try to talk to him about who angus tully was we had auditioned, we meaning the casting director and I had fielded about 800 submissions for that part. It's very easy to get that many submissions because anyone around the world who hears about it just gets the email address and uploads an audition. But we look at all of them because you never know. And we didn't find anyone we liked from either seasoned professional young actors or from, you know, less seasoned actors or from non-actors just didn't so finally as we were still waiting for more additions to trickle in we pulled the trigger on something we were going to do anyway which is call up the schools where I actually was going to be shooting and talk to the drama teacher and say hey who what students would like to audition for a movie that's going to shoot in their school and there he was at a school called Deerfield Academy and he was uh, never been in front of the camera uh, but it was a star in in their plays and on track to be a professional actor. He was making his applications to uh, acting programs. One of our most important skills, I feel, is to identify talent. Well, I think you have here. It's it's remarkable. Um, and, you know, how did he, he and Paul have to, I guess, be standoffish at first and have a more of a bond later? You know, are you somebody who does re- lots of rehearsals with with? No. with- no, I don't know okay. movies that. No, I don't know. I just get embarrassed. I wouldn't know what to say, but we we do still rehearse a bit the week before shooting. So the actors have come in, and the first part of the day, <clears throat> you know, they're making sure their hotel rooms are okay, and they have all the toilet water they need in their trailers, and uh, doing their costume fittings and so forth. And I'm nailing down last minute locations or something. But then in the afternoon, maybe, you know, four, five, six, seven o'clock, we'll get together typically at my house and 
just read through the pages, answer yeah. some very basic questions. And it just helps me to start to hear the script, those words coming out of their heads, just so I can start to get some ideas about, uh, it's always good. It's always good. And, and ideally too, in those, during those days, if there's a key location, I like to take the actors to the location and do some re basic blocking rehearsals there. Yeah. But going back to the, the consideration of the importance of location and set design for, for actors, that's super important, I think, to get them to the location before they shoot there. If it's a, a couple's house that they've lived in for 40 years and they're seeing it for the first time only on the day of shooting, no, 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 no. Nah. It needs to feel like somewhere they... Yeah, they've got to own it. Oh, yeah, I've been here. I, You know, some familiarity. Um, and obviously another key component of uh, filmmaking is sound. And I don't think we ask directors enough about sound. Um, I've heard that you called Walter Murch to get some tips for the holdovers. Is that true? And what did he tell you? He... So I wanted it to sound just as much as I could. I mean, not completely like a early seventies picture with a hissy optical track though. I, you know, but uh, I knew the picture was going to be in mono, completely in mono. And I just asked him for tips on, mm -hmm. so he told me, well, don't, don't make any sound more than eight dBs higher than any other sound, including a backfire or gunshot or something like that. Shouldn't, shouldn't be that much louder than dialogue is. He also said that uh, back then they would work very hard, and you can imagine how how hard Walter Murch would have worked to get their mixes just brilliant and perfect. But then they'd get them back from the lab on the optical stripe, and he he described the he said it's as though they had wrapped plastic around our beautiful mixes. Oh, when he saw the film at the London Film Festival a couple months ago. I saw him afterwards and he said, uh, you know, good job, kid. I said, yeah, thanks. And he said, you know what the most remembering our conversation? He said, you know what the most 70s touch of your film was? And I said, no, what? And he said that they didn't hug at the end. They shake hands. Real men shake hands in the 70s, I guess. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but that handshake means a lot. Yeah, it's in their eyes. Yes. Oh. Um. One of your other key collaborators, who I know you've worked with for a while, is Kevin Tent, your editor. And I'm wondering, I think I've heard that you storyboard quite a bit before shooting. Wrong. Is... No, you don't. Okay, well, I've read wrong. I'm too lazy. I'm too lazy. Never okay, story. this is Never good. Story. Other than downsizing, because you have to do pre-vis for visual effects mm -hmm. budgeting. Never storyboarded. Not interested. Okay. Love but, it. But, but uh, sorry, don't let me... No, but this is great because I was going to ask, I mean, how much are you, are you talking to Kevin before you even shoot? Yes. When he says this scene is too long or the script is too long, ah. or too long, too long, too long, too long. <laughs> <laughs> this scene is going to go AP. We're not, it's not going to make the final cut. Well, how do you know that? So anyway, no, I, he's not just an editor. He's a filmmaker. He's just, yeah. you know, as great, all my great collaborators are, everyone thinks like a director within their own disciplines. But uh, yeah, I've worked with him on everything since 1995, since Citizen Ruth, and he's a good friend and close, close collaborator. You know, it's and like having it's like having a co-writer. Oh. And <clears throat> do you, did this film were, were there particular challenges in the edit? I mean, you there are a lot of long scenes or long takes in this film, which are work really well. But does that make it 
harder in the edit? No. No. We didn't have, you know, the script was in pretty good condition. If the script is sound, then your editing process is sounder. Basically, by the time you get to the cutting room, if your script is in good shape and you cast well, you're in pretty good shape. Script, you know, a movie can be anything, but the type of movies we're talking about, it's script and casting. Those, If those two things are sound, then the director is free mm. to make many other mistakes, mm. still uh, have a safety net. And I think I heard one of your producers saying they really did not want to pay for that Cat Stevens song. Um, how important were some of these? None, music- of us, none of us wanted to pay that much for a song. Yes. I, didn't, I didn't want to either. But, but you I, wanted the song. I couldn't replace I We tried like hell to replace it with something cheaper and nothing worked as nicely. So that was our one big ticket item in the, okay. the music budget. You, you couldn't have real sandwiches, but you got the song. Right. Yeah. Pick your battles. <laughs> um, before I open up to questions, I, there was one scene. I mean, there's 20 scenes at least I could pick to to delve into. But I was really curious about this scene where um, Paul Hunnam and Angus are uh, in the city. They're you know by the ice skating rink, and they run into Paul's old classmate. And I just thought it was really interesting in terms of the way it's set up. But and also just, you know, the dialogue being really spot on and just them sort of enjoying each other's performances, I think. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that scene, why you needed that scene in the film and how it evolved and how, how you shot it a little? Why we need the scene? Well, it, it's just, you know, they're on they're in it's a section of the film where, where they're in Boston and have little adventures. So one of those adventures reveals Mr. Hunnam's past some humiliation that he had okay. suffered. And uh, and it furthermore, because he tries to lie his way out of, <clears throat> he lies his way through that scene and Angus, his student charge becomes complicit in the lie. Then the scene also serves to bond those two together even more. Mm-hmm. When two people share a lie, there's uh, an immediate uh, perverse intimacy between them. So. We were building the relationship more and more. Earlier in the movie, uh, Angus' character had lied about exactly why he had uh, dislocated his shoulder. And Paul says, or the teacher says, Barton men don't lie. But just a few scenes later, we see him lying. And uh, how we staged it, well, that's a wonderful way in which a location tells you how it would like to be shot, or at least suggests things that you yourself never might have thought of that's one reason why i prefer locations over sets is i don't i'm not sure i could think of something as interesting as a real location in this case the skating rink was near a set of steps leading up to a building so it made sense that these our lead characters might be leaving the skating rink and going up to to go back to the hotel Well, that gave me an idea because there's a power dynamic between this old comrade, Kavanaugh, Paul Giamatti's character, to stage it. And it's also funny that he's above, he's two or three steps above Paul Giamatti. So it was nice that. And then I was happy with that location because shooting down on Paul from there allowed me to kind of keep the frame alive with the skating rink in the background and have some layers of activity Mm. going on keep the keep the frame spicy 
But just as I was saying it earlier in our conversation, it's you, you, one wants to, I want to maintain a strong sense of the intimate story, intimate story in the foreground, but have other things going on in the background, hmm. the location, the, the ambiance. I'm a, it's, it's a reason why I prefer wider lenses to long lenses. Mm. Cause I want to see around. I want to see things. I don't want to, I, but when I do use a long, long lens, it's for a specific reason. If you really want to isolate someone. <clears throat> I am going to turn now, sorry for my pause. I'm turning now to some great questions <clears throat> we're getting from the audience. So thank you and keep them coming. You fellow directors will have great questions for Alexander. So David Anderson is saying thank you for the film. Um, he read Sidney Lumet's book. That's and, a great book. That's yeah, a good one. And really liked hearing about or reading about Sidney's morning routine, about doing a crossword and then reading over scenes for the day. Um, and David himself has um, chopped and changed what he does before a day on set. And he's wondering, do you have a morning routine while you're shooting? A little bit. I'll typically read the pages for the day right before I go to sleep and then set the alarm a few minutes early and read them again and then drift off into that half asleep, half awake state to just see it and feel it more. And then I like to get to the set, I don't know, at least 20 minutes early and, and be alone before all the troops come. And I kind of act through every part okay. so that I, I'm aware of what the actors will be going through and can feel and think what they might think, some version of what they might be thinking and feeling. And, and, Do you actually like stand on the set where they're going to be standing and speak the line? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I kind of act it out. I just go and kind of act out for myself what each of them will be doing. And that actually maybe even gives me an idea for blocking. Mm. Like, if I haven't thought of it already, a new idea to to suggest like, oh God, what if I go over here and I put the camera there and so forth. So I've already done this a couple of times by the time, you know, the shooting day arrives, but I'll do it one last time because you never know when, you know, like when you're editing or when you write a script and each time you go through it, you think of another little detail. Well, the same thing in preparing to shoot a scene, you know, you think you've prepared it all, but if you get there again, there might be one other detail you can wring out of it. That's what I do. Sounds good. Do you drink a lot of coffee? Or are you a tea man? No, not too much. A little uh, espressos, but you cr you come up you come up with coffee, but you crash hard. So you've got to be easy with your uh, caffeine intake. I find. Good idea. And then, every day, my my routine more though is every day at lunch I take a nap every single day. No meetings, no nothing at lunch. I I, I wolf down my food in five minutes and sprint to the trailer and sleep. Oh, we all love a nap. That's great. Yeah, that's the most important thing. Um, a really interesting question <laughs> has come in from Chrysanthi, who is asking, or first saying that they love the characters in your films. They are real and complex and wonderfully flawed. I agree. So do you have any advice for writing characters that can feel that truthful and authentic, especially when they're coming from a different world, a different background that you're not as familiar with? No, I have no advice. Just do it. 
The only advice I could think of is, I mean, if, if Chrysanthi, if you're specifically asking about like, if you're writing wildly disparate people from you, well, they're not so different from you. We, we share common, emo- I mean, if cinema doesn't teach us, if it, cinema teaches us anything, it's that we're all one and we have similar emotions and feeling the exteriors, the cultural uh, exteriors might differ, but inside we're all the same. That's the whole point. And so if you're able to plug yourself into that character, regardless of, you know, whatever exterior race, religion, epoch in which the person lives, whatever, uh, you know, in this movie, there's uh, Mary, the black cook, lower class lady. And uh, David Hemmingson, you won't meet a whiter fellow, but he gave himself the thought experiment because he he was he loved his mother very much. And he lost his mother in an early age. And he kind of said, well, what if my mother had lost me? And it kind of brought him into her soul a little bit. And that's the place from which he wrote that character. So all I can say is it's all inside you. Good advice or not quite advice, but yeah, try it out. Good luck, Chrysanthi. Um, Spencer Brown is uh, congratulating you on an amazing film and saying that all your films uh, tread a line between drama and comedy. And do you ever have to consciously pull back on the comedy or the drama or put one more back in? Or is it just sort of organic and seeing where it takes you? The latter. (laughs) Look, I mean, the first part of your question, yes, sure, you might, particularly in the cutting room, calibrate how jokey you're going to play something. Mm. And on set, I always like to tell the actors, we stay on this side of the joke. I want to keep it real. I don't want to go on that side of the joke. I want to stay on this side of the joke. Keep it kind of straight-faced, Dead, deadpan, let's say. But uh, it's it's you have your own guide. I can't really tell you how you should guide the tone of your film because you're oh. you're a different person and you'd have a different tone. Hmm. Do you and Kevin <clears throat> ever disagree on a, like a comedic moment or when a beat is funny or do you sort of on the same page? Pretty much on the same page. Okay. And in case of disagreement, I win because I'm the director. <laughs> Very good. Um, I think we're going to start. If anybody has one more question, please do put it in the Q&A. Um, I'm going to ask one, which is, I think, if I've counted correctly, this is your eighth feature film. Did you do anything that felt like a new challenge to you? I know every film is a challenge and just getting through the day, but did you do any kind of new aspect of filmmaking? Did you learn something especially new on The Holdovers? You had given me that question before I could I could think about it. I'm always a little hard pressed oh, to yeah. An anecdote or something that went wrong or because it's like a blur because, you know, you're just in the zone when you're making a film and you kind of you rely on people, you know, pictures people give you. So, oh, yeah, shit. I remember that day. Um, let me come. Let me be thinking about that. Okay. Well, okay. Is was there any time in making this film that you thought? Oh my gosh, this something has fallen apart, and I don't know if we can actually. Let, let, let me it. go back. Let me just say, okay, something that's maybe not with this film, but increasingly with age and experience, is uh, trying to erase the borders between my real life and 
what's being shot. That, yes, you're just you as a person, and in the moment of directing a film, you're the director, and and um, you know have a certain authority, or I like to say, primus inter pares, first among equals. But I, I, uh, I don't know. I'm just not interested in playing the role of a director. I just want to yeah. be, just want to be me, and I don't want to feel the texture of reality change too much when I say, okay, now action, and you know, do that and cut boy that sucked and just i don't know just like just experience lets you just be realer and calmer about the whole thing mm. i like i like that also on a nostalgic <clears throat> note uh you studied film at ucla i'm wondering if some of the lessons you learned in those ucla days still are with you um you know, sort of how are you feeling about your film school experience now? Does it just feel like a, that was your youth and, or does it no. feel like relevant now? It feels relevant because I've never stopped feeling like a film student. Oh. I am a film student for my entire life. I just now get to do it with a bigger cast and crew. And uh, you can say, well, it's shot in the aspect ratio of 166. Why did you choose 166? Well, to see what that was like. It was kind of an arbitrary decision that way. I can also say yes, because it was a human film and the, the narrower the aspect ratio, the better close-ups are. And I wanted some really nice human close-ups. So that's true. But really it was just so, because I've shot, you know, 233 cinemascope i've shot 233 super 35 i shot 185 a bunch of times now 166 i'm looking forward to doing 133 sometime okay all, all the kids are doing it now <laughs> ever since uh, pavel pavlikovsky started doing it a few years ago with Ida yeah. and cold war so i don't know beautiful films yes um what could do you have sort of dream projects we've you know we've heard that there could be an election sequel at some point, does that still feel on the cards for you? Yeah, and I also want to ask, I know you have Greek heritage and I would like you to come to Europe and make oh, some I, films in Greece or the that's UK. That's the whole reason. That's the whole reason I got my Greek citizenship. Okay. Yes, it's nice to be a Greek and, and it'll be nice to make films in Greece. But for my expat future, I uh, which may be pretty soon, I would like to start making, I think it would be a challenge to start to make films in different countries and in different languages oh. kind of a, as an extension of what we were asking about what you were asking about at the beginning of our discussion which is you know capturing a sense of place and going from nebraska to california to hawaii to massachusetts or wherever i, I now want to start doing that in other countries and at different times and even in different languages it just seems like that would be fun wow you're such a great storyteller you've brought it back around to where we started i mean it's a full circle i got a billion of them I, I can tell. Um, I just want to remind before um, before we wrap and before Jocelyn. That went quickly. Thanks, that everybody. Went it, uh, it went too quickly. But I want to remind everybody that's <laughs> watching in the UK that this film is out by Universal on Friday. And go see it on a cinema. Go see it twice on a cinema. It, it really is wonderful. I want to thank you, Alexander Payne. I'm sure Thanks, Jocelyn Wendy. wants to thank you, too. And even though I... And prevented from seeing you. Warm greetings and happy new year to all of you. Thanks for thanks for listening in. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. 
You can hear plenty more directors in conversation by subscribing on the usual streaming platforms. Follow us on social media and find out more about us at directors.uk.com. <laughs>